we pray at the start of every sermon. Um, we should definitely pray this morning, though. We, we should so let's pray. Father, we love you. And, uh, oh, Lord, we're grateful for your word and that you reveal uh, to us who you are in Scripture. And so, Lord, would you teach us, help us uh, gain a right view uh, of who you are? And we pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would teach us and help us, help us understand what we read. Uh, help our hearts to be gripped by these truths and help us apply these things to our lives. Uh, we love you. We thank you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. We're glad you're here at FBC. Uh, my name's Matt, and just want to welcome you, especially if you're new. I want to invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're going to be. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, no problem. There's some on the seats in front of you, or you can follow along. We're going to have the words uh, to the verses on the screen. That's okay, too. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, where we're continuing this sermon series that we've uh, been in for several months now, just walking through the New Testament book of Acts. Acts. It's been uh, a lot of fun so far. Uh, while you're finding Acts chapter 5, I wanted to share uh, a, a research study I came across. Back in 2019, uh, some research was released that made headlines, and the headline was this, Millennial Melancholy. Nine in ten young Brits believe their life lacks purpose, according to shocking new study. So there was a nationwide survey done in the UK, again, of 16 to 29-year-olds, and it concluded 9 out of 10 feel disillusioned and like their life is meaningless. Not exactly sure what the numbers would be in the US, but safe to say probably some similar trends and themes. If Rates of depression, anxiety, mental health concerns are any indication, right? Those have skyrocketed recently in our context. And so I think we can look at this study and see some similar themes to the U.S. A stat like this should, should move us first, right, to compassion, right? Our hearts should be grieved by uh, this sad, sad truth. And it should also make us ask the question, Why? I mean, what in the world is going on? What in the world has gotten into our water supply to lead to this kind of outcome? In the research done, there were a number of theories put forth as to what was leading to this shocking result. And some of the suggestions were, hey, young people uh, said that, hey, if they had more money uh, and financial stability, they would feel like life had more purpose. If uh, they had more time with their family and meaningful relationships, that would help them feel like they had more purpose. Um, if they did more meaningful work in the community, were involved in their local community in different ways, that could help them find more purpose and meaning. And, and I think there's some truth probably to all of those different strands uh, of evidence. But I think we have to dig a little bit deeper to really understand a trend this shocking. I think we have to look at, at the question of, of worldview. I mean, what is the narrative that we are selling to the next generation about life and the good life and purpose and meaning. Because whatever the narrative has been, uh, clearly it's not working. Clearly it's not leading to life and flourishing. 
And if you look at, you know, the data from the last several decades, I mean, really for the last 50 years, especially, the narrative has been, in the, in the Western world at least, that, hey, life is about you being happy. Right? It's, it's about self-fulfillment. It's about whatever little desire is in your heart, you go chase that and pursue that, and that's going to lead to the good life. Define your own identity. Follow your heart wherever it leads, no matter what your community says or your family says or what God says. Right? There's no, no bigger vision for life and flourishing. There's no, no reality of God which, which, with which, under which you sit and submit to and surrender to. And an emphasis like that on self might sound good. Or sound true. Maybe even to question it as I'm doing right now. Someone say, whoa, where's, where's he going with this? It sounds right. It sounds good. It sounds loving even. And yet, the data shows it's not leading to life and human flourishing. And what we see this morning in our text in Acts chapter 5 is actually this picture, this, this demonstration uh, of the dangers of a selfish heart. And the reality that a selfish heart actually leads to destruction rather than flourishing. See, sin and selfishness uh, are not just a modern day problem. Right? We see them on display throughout history and even back here in the early church in the first century. Think about what we've just read. We're, we're in Acts chapter 5 to start, and we see this man named Ananias who comes to church that morning. He sold a piece of property, but the text tells us he, he keeps back some of the proceeds for himself, and he gave the rest to the church. And Peter confronts him and realizes, just from the very get-go, that the problem is not that he withheld some of the money, the problem was that he lied about withholding some of the money. He made it seem like he gave generously all the proceeds from the sale of this piece of property, when in reality, he didn't. And so Peter says, hey, you lied to God, lied to the Holy Spirit. And right there, Ananias is struck dead. Now, look what happens next, verse 7. About three hours later... His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So the same thing that happened to Ananias a little bit later happens to his wife, Sapphira. She repeats the lie, making it seem like, yep, we gave more than we actually did, and she's struck dead and buried, and great fear seized them all. You guys picked a great day to come to church. <laughs> I mean, really, I, no one makes this their life verse. I've never seen someone with like a tattoo of this verse on their biceps, you know? <laughs> or like, what's your favorite Bible story, kids? It's the one where that married couple gets terminated at church for lying about their money. Um, you know, this is a tough text. Let's just own that at the start. Hey, this is something, what do we do with this? Uh, 
roadmap for the morning then. This event, what we just read about, is going to tell us about three things. It's going to tell us a bit about life in the church. It's going to tell us a bit about the reality of our hearts. And it's going to tell us something about the presence of God. Again, it's going to tell us about life in the church, about the reality of our hearts, and the presence of God. So let's start with the first one. What does this tell us about life in the church? A little bit of context. Let's think back to what we saw uh, last week, if you were with us, at the end of chapter 4. Remember our friend Barnabas? This is what it said at the end of chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this was last week. We, we read uh, in a few verses before, it talked about the remarkable unity of the church. Or they were of one heart and mind. There were no needy people among them. They were sharing resources, selling property, distributing it to those who had need. Radical generosity, radical love, radical unity on display. And that general principle was then uh, exemplified with our friend Barnabas. He, he was an example of someone who lived that out. He sold a field, brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. We're like, wow, Barnabas, amazing. Well done. Fantastic. That good example by Barnabas is followed immediately by the start of chapter 5 in this negative example of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Look at how chapter 5 starts in verse 1. It says, now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property, right? Just like Barnabas. But with his wife's full knowledge, he, Ananias, kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So we have to see this story linked with what we just read about, what just happened. In fact, some people, when they're preaching through the book of Acts, will, will take the start of chapter 5 and preach it along with the end of chapter 4, because it's so similar. There's a clear contrast, right? And that contrast is, is at the heart of what God is trying to show us. There's this beautiful, encouraging example of chapter 4, unity and love and generosity. And at the very same time in the church, we see real problems. We see sin. We see the enemy even at work. And so just notice with me that Luke doesn't shield us from that or present an overly idealized picture of life in the church. No, he said there's great unity and love and generosity, and right after it, in the same breath basically, there is sin and problems in the church. So we're given a realistic picture of life in the church. And I think that's actually quite helpful for us, because even here, back in Acts chapter 5, at the beginning of the church, we see this, and because sometimes what we'll do is we'll idealize, we'll overly idealize life in the early church, right? You ever felt that, or thought that, or heard that? Like, man, if we could just get back to how it was in the book of Acts, if we could just get back to how it was in the New Testament days, this pure expression of the faith, things were so good then, and look at how far we've strayed and wandered, if we could just get back. 
But you look back at the New Testament, and you see this real mixed bag, right, of no doubt the presence of God and the power of God and healing and salvation, and at the same time, sin and broken relationships and problems and judgment, and we have to wrestle with the reality of both of those things in the life of the church. Right, there's plenty of exemplary stuff in the New Testament about what the believers were doing, uh, what we should model, uh, what we should do likewise. But then there's plenty of stuff here, like people lying about their money and getting struck down dead in church. Or remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, the guy sleeping with his father's wife, and Paul's like, hey, don't, don't do that. Uh, and then for, uh, Galatians chapter 1, people distorting the message of the gospel. And adding to the gospel, saying, yeah, believe in Jesus, that's good, but also circumcision and also these other laws you got to follow. So you read through the New Testament and you just see, man, no doubt, powerful move of God, healing, salvation, and yet, real problems. And so I think we can look at both of those back to back, and that should help us prepare for life in the church. That, hey, maybe it's going to be a little bit, a little bit messy. It's going to take a lot of forbearance and patience and extending grace and forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness, extending forgiveness, praying for one another. Relationships, uh, especially with, with sinful people, which is all of us, um, are going to take a lot of work. And it's going to be hard sometimes. And, and I'm preaching this, believe me, I'm preaching this to myself. Because sometimes I'll notice myself getting, like, surprised or caught off guard when things are uh, difficult in the church. You know, I've been in ministry now of leadership of some kind for, you know, 15 years. I've seen a lot. And yet still, sometimes I'll be like, man, uh, what, what is going on? It's not supposed to be like this. Why is it hard? And God will kind of gently tap me and be like, um, why are you surprised? Right? <laughs> You, you've seen that. You see this in the New Testament. You've seen this in your own experience in life in the church. Um, you know, you're, things are going to happen. We're still sinners. We're going to need to reconcile. We need to extend forgiveness and seek forgiveness. Um, you're going to do dumb stuff, Matt, and need to uh, apologize. And other people are going to do things that they shouldn't do. And you're going to have to seek reconciliation. You have to be patient and practice forbearance and all these things. So be prepared for that reality in the church. At the same time, we see not only our sin is going to be an issue, but we have a very real enemy, don't we? Look at verse 3. Well, Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money? So Peter says, hey, this isn't just about your moral failing and flaw here. It is, but there's this influence of Satan. We have a very real spiritual enemy that we don't talk about a whole lot. But the Bible talks about plenty. An accuser, an enemy of the church who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, who wants to come between you and other people, who wants to come between you and the Lord. And Ananias, rather than his heart being filled with the Spirit, as chapter 4 told us the rest of the church was, his heart is filled with Satan. And he lies to the Holy Spirit. One commentator put it this way, then we have to realize that cosmic forces, unseen spiritual realities, are very interested and concerned with what happens in God's church. 
there's a spiritual reality here, an enemy that wants to derail our unity, that wants to derail our, our mission of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. So be prepared. Be alert, right? The devil pro, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be alert. Be diligent in prayer. Pray for your family. Pray for your church family. Pray for one another. Live in community as well. You guys have seen the nature documentaries like in Africa when the lion's like taking out a gazelle or trying to get a wildebeest or whatever? You see they, they, they run in and try and create chaos and they try and isolate a weak one, get it alone so they can devour it. We're much safer when we're living in community with others who can support us and pray for us and encourage us and challenge us and say, hey, this thing you're doing or the way you're thinking about this, can we talk about that? Maybe that's not the healthiest thing. Care well for one another. So, that's what this text is telling us about life in the church. It's going to be a little messy. We're going to need one another. We need to be aware of, of the enemy's schemes. This text also, though, just shines a light on the human heart. Point two, it talks about the reality of our hearts. Because Peter doesn't just blame Satan. Also, he sees Ananias and Sapphira and their responsibility in this. Look at the text again. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So notice, Ananias and Sapphira, they're responsible for their actions, right? For their sin. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter's clear in verse 4. This is key. Basically trying to say, hey, you didn't have to do any of this. Right? It was, it was your property before you sold it. Right? Yeah? And after you sold it, the money was at your disposal? Yeah? You could have you kept it. You didn't have to kind of fabricate this scenario, trying to make yourself look a certain way. You weren't forced into this. So what was going on in your heart that led to this? You notice that he's trying to dig below the surface. Say, what's going on in the human heart that, that leads to sin and an action like this? And actually, verse 4, it, 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 in the NIV, it's translated, what made you think of doing such a thing? I don't think that's actually the most helpful translation because in the Greek, it uses the word heart there again, similar to earlier in the text. And it more naturally reads, why did you set or purpose your heart to do such a thing? See, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The problem isn't just the sinful action on the surface. The scriptures always want to point us to what's going on in the human heart beneath that action. What's going on in the human heart that leads us to sin and act out in these ways? Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, talked clearly about how we're defiled or become unclean. And it's not from the world out there that we brush up against. It's out of the human heart flows these things. So, let's talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Where did they go wrong? What was going on in their heart? I think two things we can point out. The first is, is a quick one. But first, I think they had their hearts set on their money and possessions. Right, well, the, the rest of the church was moved to being open-handed, to generosity, to caring for the needs of others. 
uh, there was still a part of them that was held, holding on to their possessions and their wealth. Their heart was set there. Pastor John Piper put it this way when he was talking about the, the author of this book, Luke. He said this about Luke, who wrote this. You will see that this is one of his main burdens. He wants us Christians to be free from the love of things, and he wants us firm in our love for people. And he does not believe that you can have both at the same time. He wants us to be free from the love of things and firm in our love for people. And often our love for things and stuff gets in the way of our love for people. And so though Ananias and Sapphira were, were in the church and around the church and seeing radical acts of, of generosity, people loving one another well, their hearts had not yet been set free from the love of things. They needed the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, to sink down into their hearts and actually lead them to, to being open-handed, to be free from a love of possessions. So that's part of it. But I think the bigger part that Peter speaks to is that they had their hearts set on appearances. They wanted to appear a certain way before the church. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be seen as generous. They wanted to be uh, seen as committed. They wanted to be seen as, as more committed than they actually were, and so they lied to appear that way. The verb in verse 2, for they kept back money for themselves, it's, it's a term that, that always is tied to financial fraud or deception. It's the same verb that's used back in Joshua chapter 7, if you remember the story of Achan, who uh, the same word is used there where he took something, some things, some silver, some wealth that was supposed to be devoted to the Lord, and he hid it. Uh, and kept it for himself, and he did so secretly. And then uh, the Lord identified that there was sin in the camp, and he was found out, and there was judgment. But it's the same idea. There's this deception, this secrecy, so that one might look a certain way. It, it's interesting. Back in 2017, there was a Time magazine cover. Maybe you remember it. Uh, the cover story was why, excuse me, not time, National Geographic. The cover story was why we lie. The science behind our complicated relationship with the truth. Psychologists uh, learned and, and studied and shared there that, that lying seems to be uh, pretty universal to the human experience. It's, it's pretty automatic. No one has to set their children down and teach them how to lie. Right, let me tell you how this goes, show you how to do it. No, uh, they naturally on their own uh, learn to lie. They figure it out, just like walking or talking. Now, they found some, some things about demographics, and they found out a certain age group lies the most. Any guesses at what age group lies the most? Teenagers. Yeah, sorry, young people, it's just the science. It's just the data there. Not trying to make you feel bad, but it's just, it's true, you can't argue with it. Okay, uh, and they also found that there was a certain demographic that were the worst liars. Just really bad at it and didn't do it very often. Any guesses? Uh, seniors. Seniors, the elderly, retired people are the worst liars in the study. Actually, showed that it takes a lot of brain power and energy to lie. And 
here it is. It takes a lot of brain power and energy to lie, and eventually we run out of both, and we're just like, whatever, I don't really care what you think of me anyway, so I'm just going to tell the truth. Um, that's just what the study found, okay? So there it is. But they found that all people lie, and all people lie for, for the same sorts of general reasons. There's three big reasons they found people lie. Uh, the first was to protect ourselves. We lie to protect ourselves. There, there's some kind of um, mistake, transgression, sin, wrong that we've done that we don't want people to know about. It. We want to cover it up uh, and hide it. Um, or, yeah, we want to avoid a certain situation or a certain person, so we lie about something. That's number one, to protect ourselves. Uh, the second reason, which is actually, number two is actually the, the highest percentage uh, they found people doing this. We lie to promote ourselves. So we want to somehow gain a financial benefit, a personal advantage, um, create a positive self-image, want people to think a certain way about us, so we promote ourselves. Um, and the last one was to impact others. That was the smallest uh, percentage on the list, but we want to be somehow altruistic and lie to make people feel better, or social or polite, lying, like we'll you know, like laugh at the pastor's joke even when it's not funny because you want to make him feel better. That falls into category number three there. Um, but by far, the the, the highest percentage were one and two, protect ourselves and promote ourselves. And so we can look at Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, and wonder, what was their motivation? It was number two, right? They wanted to promote themselves. They wanted to be seen a certain way by the community. They wanted to look good. They wanted praise, admiration, honor. They wanted to, to shape their public image and gain a personal advantage from this. I mean, I'm so glad that none of us do this today. <laughs> none of us would even think of going on something like social media and trying to present ourselves a certain way. We, just, we would not do that, right? We would never try to make ourselves appear better or stronger or, or more put together or more impressive than we actually are. We, we've evolved past that petty stuff. No, of course we haven't. And whether it's on social media or just in, in everyday life and relationships and interactions, we still have the same impulse. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted people to treat them like Barnabas without having to be as sacrificial as Barnabas. Because Barnabas, he gave to give, right? Now, the, the generosity and love in his heart, he gave to give. They gave to get. Because they wanted something from their gift. The theologian John Stott uh, put it this way. They wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. So the example of Ananias and Sapphira, pretty dramatically, I would say, shows that a selfish heart leads to destruction. A selfish heart leads to destruction. Sin, we know, leads to death and devastation. And even though our culture tells us to focus on you and make life about you and follow your heart, 
we see where that leads. Nine out of ten young millennials in Britain saying life has no purpose. It's just empty, right? What an empty, bankrupt, sad way to live where it's just all about me. God wants to lift our eyes and help us see not only him, but then uh, the greater work he's called us to in his world. And so a selfish heart in our sin is going to lead to destruction. A selfish heart can, can ruin your marriage. Right? Where it's just, it's just about you, and you're not willing to sacrifice or suffer for the good of your spouse because it's about your needs and your wants. And you expect, expect the other person to change and adapt to you rather than the other way around. Tim Keller had this great quote where he says, you need to view the biggest problem in your marriage uh, as your own selfishness. So a selfish heart can ruin your marriage. A selfish heart can ruin your relationships, not just in your marriage, but in your family, your friendships, uh, with your colleagues, and am I ringing there? You guys hear me all right? <laughs> Woo! Sorry. Um, a selfish heart can ruin your relationships because so much of relationships, right, is based on trust and character. And if you're living with a selfish heart constantly, what's going to happen is you're going to start to use other people. And people are going to notice it. And it's going to harm your relationships. And of course, a selfish heart is destructive and leads to death before the Lord. Because it, it prevents us from submitting to Jesus, to surrendering to God, to confessing Him as Lord and Savior. And it's, that's the deadliest part of all. It can cut off our only path to forgiveness because we don't surrender to God and commit to living in His ways. God designed us to, to have Him at the center of our lives, not ourselves. And He also designed us then, secondly, to live for the good of other people He's put us around, to be in relationship with other people. And a selfish heart is going to distort both of those relationships with God and with people. And so the first step, I think, in response to this text is we just need to take a minute and examine our hearts. Not to push past it too quickly. Not to say, I would never. But to say, no, I probably would. And so I need the grace of God and the mercy of God. And God, just simply in prayer to say, Lord, would you help me see my heart clearly? Help me see my heart how you see my heart. Expose the lies and deception, even the self-deception. Maybe I can't even see my own sin. Lord, help me see. And that's what's so hard about the Christian life is that you, on the outside, it can be really hard to tell what's going on in the heart. Right? You can take two people who are both coming to church regularly and two people who are both giving consistently and two people who are both maybe serving on a ministry team or in some kind of leadership capacity. And from the outside, it looks completely the same. And yet with those two people, there could be very different reasons and motivations for their works and acts. There could be very different motivations and things going on in their heart. It's possible that one of them could be motivated uh, by a love for God and people. They want to give to give, to bless, to serve. While the other could give to get. I want something from God, I want something from other people, and that's what's motivating this. 
So we have to examine our hearts. So, life in the church, the reality of our hearts. Lastly, the presence of God. Let's just read through some of these events one more time just to feel them afresh. Verse 5, it says, When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So, naturally... Right on the surface, the, the, the most uh, vivid detail or immediate question of the text is the, the dramatic judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. Right? It makes us wonder, why did God respond in such a way? Because most of the time when we sin or sin at church, um, we're not struck down immediately in judgment, right? I haven't been to a church service where that happens. I, I pray. I don't have to um, ever, but that's not normal human experience. So what's going on here? A couple thoughts. Typically, I think the best answer to help us wrap our minds around this is that this is a unique time in the life of the church. It, it's the early days of this, this new covenant church where the Spirit has been poured out and this, this mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is given to the church. And it's at this time that, that perhaps to be stricter with them, God has to uh, give a strong judgment, a strong kind of demonstration to ensure that this, this uh, young early community will survive and take the reality of sin and their mission seriously. And, and the main parallel to this story that I think is helpful in viewing it this way is, again, back in Joshua chapter 7 with Achan, who, again, took some things he wasn't supposed to and hid them secretly and then was, was judged for it. Um, again, similar language and verbs are used in that passage, the almost parallel text. Uh, commentators will notice that, again, if you think about when that happened in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 7. It's really at the beginning, the early days of this, of God forming his people into a covenant community. And so you have then and here with the new covenant, early days in the covenant community, God making a clear uh, demonstration of the reality of sin and his presence and his holiness. And I think it's a vivid reminder of the presence of God within the church. Peter says, hey, Ananias and Sapphira, you, you weren't just lying to men. You weren't just lying to us. You weren't just damaging our relationships. You were, were trying to deceive the Lord. Lying to the Holy Spirit. Testing the Holy Spirit. And so there's this idea that as the church gathers, the very presence of God by His Spirit is, is among us. So Ananias and Sapphira, you, you cannot deceive God. He's here. He sees it all. He, he knows it all. There are no locked doors or, or hidden closets for the Holy Spirit. And so may we, we enter into church with a, a reverence, an awe of, of the holiness and majesty and glory 
of God. Today is Pentecost Sunday, which is a day on the church calendar where the global church is the seventh Sunday after Easter. We'll remember the events of Pentecost Sunday in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit uh, falls on the apostles and they're speaking in different languages and the Spirit fills the church and empowers them for mission. This this dramatic moment uh, birthing the church essentially. And so on Pentecost Sunday, we remembered the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God filling and empowering the church, that God is with us by His Spirit, that God is, is equipping us and uniting us and empowering us for all the, the good work that He has for us to do. And there should be, again, an appropriate level of, of reverence that comes with that reality. Like, the, if we really believe that, the, the the creator of all the universe, the sovereign God of all history, dwells in our midst and in our presence by his spirit. That should affect us. And twice in the passage, you notice it says that they were seized with fear. See that? Verse 5 and verse 11. Fear seized the church. Some may see that as a bad thing. But the scriptures consistently talk about the fear of the Lord as actually a good thing. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9 says, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is this healthy and right posture that comes from seeing and understanding who God is. Seeing God in his glory, recognizing his majesty, his holiness, that he is a God of of justice. Who deals with sin? Who judges sin? Right? One who we'll have to stand before one day as the ultimate judge and, and answer to him. And so then, every time we sin and we're not struck down, <laughs> it's an example of the mercy and grace of God in withholding judgment. Now, you might be saying, hold on, Pastor. I thought God was about grace and love and kindness, and this feels a little heavy-handed. God absolutely is about grace and love and kindness and mercy, absolutely. And God is a God of holiness and righteousness and justice, the judge of all the earth who deals with sin. And so a right and healthy and appropriate posture before the Lord is to be just aware of our sin, our need for healing and salvation, aware of his majesty See, a good definition of the fear of the Lord I've heard is it's awe mixed with intimacy. Awe, reverence before a holy God. Not letting our nearness and intimacy with him overshadow the majesty of who he is and the greatness and power. But also intimacy. That that through the work of Jesus, we've been forgiven of our sins. Our sins have been covered, and we can actually enter into the presence of this holy and righteous God because of the work of Christ. We're justified by faith in Christ. And so when we understand the holiness of God and the fear of the Lord, it actually makes the gospel that much sweeter. It makes the gospel that much better because we realize that we have no business standing before the Lord in our sin, and so we needed a mediator 
And we have a mediator, and his name is Jesus. And so I just, as we close, I'm going to have a moment to pray. And I just want to leave, just leave a space for you to do business with the Lord. Maybe some of us are coming in and we're like, Lord, I'm just, I'm playing church. I'm just coming in and I uh, don't really give uh, much of a care about how I'm living, you know, Monday to Saturday. And then I come in and pretend like things are all good. Lord, maybe I just, I'm feeling convicted by the Spirit. I just want to confess my sin before you. I'll be aware of your presence here. I don't want to take the holiness of God lightly. And so, Lord, would you forgive me? But again, the goodness of the gospel is that God doesn't just leave us there with conviction and sin. We acknowledge it, confess it, and then we're forgiven and and freed and experience the, the love and embrace of our Father. So let's just take a moment to pray for you to sit and, and do whatever business you need to do with the Lord. Father, I pray you'd hear our prayers. We don't want to take it lightly that we're in your presence. you the sovereign, majestic, glorious creator of all things. So would you speak to us now by your spirit? Father, we think of the words of David. He said, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So that is our prayer. Father, none of us come in here with heads held high as if our own righteousness merits uh, us to be in your presence. Lord, we only come uh, humble and by the gift of of your grace through the work of Jesus. And so, Father, help us, help us live with that posture that we are forgiven, we've been rescued by the work of Jesus. And would you then move us by your Spirit to great love for you and love for our neighbors. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.